Hi, and welcome to Leto Narrative Dissidents. This is episode six, Ars Magica. Uh, and of course, with me as always is Greg Stolze and James Wallace as we discuss a storied and uh, award-winning game, I believe, uh, that has been a staple of uh, role-playing games since its first edition in 1987. Its latest edition, fifth edition, was published in 2004, I believe. A rather unusual game in many respects. It is uh, Ars Magica is primarily a game of sorcerers and their allies in mythic Europe. It is based on what the medieval mind thought the world was about, in a sense, and it's about the story of a covenant, not just a group of player character wizards, but also their companions, their servants, uh, and the covenant, which is the, the their sort of bastion, their, their home, and it takes place over many years in game time, uh, uh, decades perhaps. In some ways, it reminds me, the structure reminds me of Pendragon, both the seasonal aspect and the large worldview, I guess you could say, instead of focusing on single characters. Yeah, this is a, a very in-depth game. The first game we've talked about that has multiple editions, it is the first game we've talked with a troop-style uh, structure, which is a very unusual still to this day in role-playing games. Not many other games have imitated this structure. It switched publishers uh, more than once, I believe. So it's had a very long history. But yeah, let's... Uh, so that's sort of the the very, very broad... El- yeah, the elevator pitch. Uh, you're, you're not just wizards. You're their, you're their friends, their servants, their allies. And what happens to this group of wizards in medieval Europe for, well, a long time. It is. So yeah, Greg, uh, would you, in, in terms of the broad overview, did I miss anything? Uh, no, I just want to sort of unpack some things. Uh, it does center. It's very wizard centric. This whole, you're a wizard, Ethelred. <laughs> and, uh, but you're also a grog and a companion. And for me, I think that is probably the most interesting part of Ars Magica. And you're right that I have not seen this done elsewhere. Uh, Troop-style play, to break it down for those of you who don't know how it works, is that instead of having your guy, where you create one bespoke character into whom you pour all your identification, you make three. And one of them is a wizard. And the wizards are intensely complicated and extremely powerful. The idea of game balance is not just thrown out the window. It's like thrown out the window after a savage beating and maybe having a dry cleaning bag tied over its head. It's like, no, if the wizard wants to, you know, if you optimize as a combat ready wizard, you're just going to vaporize any grog you meet uh, as soon as they irritate you. A grog is the exact opposite end. Uh, A grog character is... They're sort of the rude provincials of the setting. They're the fighters who protect the covenant. They are the expendables. Um, There's a line from the show Inside Job where the uh, protagonist's horrible father is explaining how the world works to his daughter. And he says, look, there are people like us who run things. And then there are people like him who deliver our pizzas 
and die in our wars. And that's the grogs, the people who deliver your pizza once pizza is invented and, uh, you know, die so that the wizard can escape or not be inconvenienced. And in the middle, you have companions who are more developed uh, or skilled or, you know, it, it's very clear in the text that companions are important to the story in the way that grogs are not. And the reason right. they have grogs is that they are the Greek chorus or the uh, comic relief characters. So when you are playing a grog, that is your permission to just cut loose, ham it up, be a goofball, make terrible, terrible decisions without putting at risk your companion or your wizard character, whom you probably care about a lot more because they represent a much greater investment, not only of attention, but of narrative potential. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, the the uh, it, I find that really interesting, where you could, you know, okay, well, for this session, I'm going to be playing my wizard, so I have to have my game face on, and I have to be ready to do, uh, to engage the very complicated wizardry mechanics mm. And really get down into the nuts and bolts of min-maxing my spells. Or I can play a companion character where it's going to be, oh, you know, this is about me being interesting and being a person who has uh, some potential to socialize with other people. Or I can just play a grog and clown around. Mm -hmm. So it it provides an interesting way to have different moods while gaming yeah it does it droop style actually goes further than that um in particularly in the earlier editions they suggest that you rotate to the gms that other mm -hmm. other people take over sessions the story guide as ours magica, magica has it um that different people can take over that either for a single session or um you know that one gm can step down another can can take over that nobody owns this story that nobody owns this particular covenant that it's very much a shared construction and this is really interesting it's sadly it's it's kind of downplayed in both fourth and particularly fifth edition where it's reduced i think to about a page um because as as you guys have said it's this is really interesting, and it does change the dynamic of most role-playing games, which are very firmly one player, one character. Though that's not how I started. I started at a, in the early '80s when, at a time when we didn't know, I and my my the DM who introduced me to it didn't know many other role players. So I played an entire party of D and D adventurers, um, and. There wasn't much role-playing involved. They were bits on a map, basically. Mm -hmm. But we still had fun with it. And then I think as a lot of first-time role-players do, you start off thinking of these things as agents, essentially, and then they acquire personalities and make silly voices, mostly, is what they're <laughs> um, I will not hear silly voices in gaming disrespected. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah. It's an incredibly powerful tool for giving somebody a personality. Mm. Yeah, but, I don't care um, if they're a powerful tool. I just love them. <laughs> But um, but then when I my great unpublished role playing game Bugtown, which I spent three or four years developing in the early nineties, I kind of spontaneously invented this myself. I hadn't read Ars Magica, um, and at one point Jonathan Tweet, who one of the co-authors of Ars Magica, uh, who had taken over become head of role play at Wizards of the Coast, was very interested in Wizards of the Coast publishing 
Bugtown. I think because it was one of the few games that had done something with the idea of true play, even though I'd, I hadn't taken it from them, I'd kind of created it myself, came to nothing in the end. But for, for long, tortuous reasons, I'm, I'm not in a mood to get into because you sure. don't want to hear me sob. Um, you don't know that. It's, uh, okay, you probably do, but it doesn't make for great podcasting. You're linking that the uh, um, the old school like D and D style of like you not have one like it was very common like in the 70s and 80s to have D and D games where everyone controlled their group their own group of characters like kind of like their own army of uh, player characters and uh, seeing ours sort of descend from that uh, I had not really made that connection um, but as our our resident European. Uh, we <laughs> haven't really talked yet about the the setting of mythic Europe and what that means, um, which I imagine is one of the th- sort of, especially even after reading the book, uh, uh, one of my impressions of this game is that if you, it is vastly more appealing if you have like at least a minor in medieval history. Um, I, and, I think, yeah. I think, yeah, it, it helps. It's a bit like Warhammer Fantasy Roleplay, strangely enough, which was written by a bunch of history graduates or at least one or two history graduates and really helps if you know the history, particularly of the closing days of the Holy Roman Empire, which is basically what the Warhammer, certainly the human parts of the Warhammer world originally were. Um, yeah, it, it helps a bit. I think it is very grounded in what is meant to be realistic. It's meant to be the real world. It's meant to be real historical Europe. But with literal dragons, where they say, here be dragons, here be dragons. Um, yes, but at the same time, the historical personages are, are, are there. The, the developments in the church are happening. Um, wars are happening. The All conflicts with the on. Moorish realms. Uh, mm. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, we'll, we'll come on to that. But it's... Yes, there's. I don't think it ever properly engages with how much of the real world it wants to, and this. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, well, I'm that's got to be a slider, I'm sure. Yeah, it's uh, like uh, not very much. Sure, a lot. Yeah, there's there's that, and in fact, I'm going to mention the artwork, which I know Greg has opinions <laughs> on, as do I. I do. Um, but there's one particular illustration. I think it's on page 169, and it's of a medieval cartographer painting this map. And it's actually, I think, from... It doesn't appear in 4th edition, but the map that he is painting is the map that appears in 4th edition. And it is a realistic... The geography is accurate in a way that no medieval maps were. <laughs> and then, so this picture appears in 5th edition of someone painting the map from 4th edition of a map that could not possibly have existed at the time. Oh, unless and, someone was casting Intelligos. Or, you know, or had a satellite. It, yeah, it, it just, I don't think the art director was thinking about that because I'm, I don't know what the art director was thinking about. Um, the art, so the footnote at this point, the art in fifth edition is not very good. Ah, uh, parts of it are good. They've got Janine Johnston. Yeah. Janine Johnston. It's. Are you sure that's not one of the bits that was in 4th edition? Because an, an awful lot of the art in 5th edition was in 4th edition. Oh, well, then I don't know where the art was sourced Janine from. Janine Johnson was also in 4th edition, he says, leafing through his copy of 4th uh-huh, right that, Well, um, that makes sense. So if I had access to her artwork, I would reuse it. I mean... Um, it's, I, I don't know. They've got Liz Danforth uh, in 5th. Sure. I think they've got yeah. one piece by Liz Danforth. And then there's an awful lot of kind of cartoony pigmen. 
Yeah, the <laughs> and, and and the first image when you're paging through the first image you come to is a the full page setter. Yeah, it is yeah. pig boy frat party, and I did not like the the pig boy frat party cartoon. It it looks very cartoonish, and mm-hmm. I don't know if that's meant. It's to- a full page illustration on page five of a yeah, barely cheaply depicted a uh, uh, pigman uh, putting some hut to the torch or uh, marching or something. Uh, there's supposed it's, to be, I think, different kind of animal men. Um, there's like a bird in the background now that I look at it. Um, but yeah, it's not it's not a great first impression uh, of the game. Um, <sighs> the, the, the art is, is very up and down. Um, it's wildly inconsistent. There's even a couple of pieces. And again, Fourth did exactly the same thing that you would swear came out of a role-playing game, uh, a, a traditional Dungeon Bashy role-playing game. Uh-huh. There, there, there's mighty feud adventurers in there, you know, wearing mm-hmm. loincloths. It's just, this has no place in any kind of vaguely realistic medieval Europe. Um, and yet it won an Any Award for its art. It, it got did honorable it? mention for Best Interior Art in 2005. Well, that just tells you what people's standards were like 16 years ago. Well, I, it might have been like a legacy thing, you know, the name. It's like this is, you know, it's like an Academy Award for I'm going actor. to assert that yeah. Danforth and Johnston can carry a lot of pig boys. It's like... <laughs> Uh, so, I mean, remember also the Ennies are the, the winners actually chosen by a, uh, an online poll. So it's a popularity contest. So, um, ours just had more fans, I guess D and D wasn't competing that year. Um, and, uh, and- but yeah, we should also talk a little bit about the, uh, before we get too further on, uh, the basic mechanics of the game. Oh, well, one, before we get yeah. into that, one thing I was going to okay. add, cause you know, for, for James is, do you think how, how much do you think it would improve your Ars Magica experience if every player was required to read Barbara Tuckman's A Distant Mirror and, uh, oh, who was it that wrote A World Lit Only by Fire? Oh, God, I recommended that in an online forum about 20 years ago and got ripped to shreds. Apparently, it's um, one should not read that book. Oh, uh, good according, God. According What's Though it's it's a fantastic it evo- it evokes an amazing world though apparently that's not the way the world actually was. I'm just a dingus then. But Barbara Tuckman, and I think Tuckman's focusing on like 200 years after Arsmagic is dead. But still, but still to understand <laughs> the way that medieval Europe worked, and the book does a fairly good job of explaining a lot of this stuff. But it is it's the it's the dull bits, mm-hmm. um, and and it doesn't evoke it particularly well. But what you're creating in Ars Mag- in an Ars Magica campaign, and it is a campaign game very much. It yes. thrives in the campaign setting. I I don't. I, I'm sure it must be possible to play an Ars Magica one shot. I don't think it would be terribly satisfying. If yeah. you if everyone who signed up for it had like a year's experience playing Ars Magica, and it had been written by someone who was deeply in love with Ars Magica, but those are a couple high hurdles to get over. I mean, a lot of people play one-shots because they're like, oh, well, I've never played this. Let's get a taste. And Mm -hmm. yeah, you cannot get a taste of Ars Magica. You can only only fully grasp it through a seven-course meal of Ars Magica. 
Mm-hmm. Yes, it's like I, I just had a, I had a flash on a one shot, which would simply be I'd advertise that there were you know people should bring their Ars Magica mages to a particular room. I wouldn't bother showing up. They just have a lovely time sitting around talking to each other in character about their different <laughs> covenants. That'd be a brilliant way to spend two or three hours because you build this community of this this sense of the whole covenant, not just you and your your companions and your grogs but the other NPCs around. And it becomes almost this living, breathing community and it evolves and it changes as time goes on as the, the path of the game. And I can and that, see how... Oh, I'm sorry, am I interrupting? I, I was just going to say, and that needs to exist within a believable world, a world that mm-hmm. feels real. And I think that's why what they call Mythic Europe, basically early Middle Ages, um, mid-Middle Ages Europe works extremely well as a setting for that. I do have a footnote in my notes for the for the evening about why are Americans so fascinated by medieval Europe? You know, you, you have, your country has a history of its own and it's a really good one. And the number of role-playing games that have ever done anything with, you know, the same time period in North mm-hmm. America, I couldn't oh, name one well, off the top of my head. Yeah. Um, I mean, there are games coming out like that right now or very soon. Uh, Coyote and Crow uh, is talking about like um, the the a fantasy version of Native American uh, cultures, uh, like the the Cahokia Mound Builders. Um, and yeah, that's that's a big, complicated question worthy of its yeah, own yeah, yeah, podcast. It's a- but yeah, uh, that is definitely true. Um, I mean, the facile answer is that a lot of Americans don't actually want to play games starring the people that we genocided because it hurts to think about that mm-hmm. uh, or that our ancestors genocided or that other people's ancestors genocided in such a way that we have indisputably benefited from it. It's It digs things up. Yeah, we also don't like learn about them or very yeah, much about them. I mean, we, we, yeah, there's there's a profound ignorance about uh, you know, that history. This big tabula rasa in what you learn in mm-hmm. school, um, and actually learning learning about like fake lore, like uh, uh, fake stories and tales that we've told that are actually not true. Uh, that's also a huge problem. But um, mm-hmm. yep. Um, but moving on uh, to eh, yeah. So the idea of changing around the GM is it it may be difficult for people who aren't our age to understand what a crazy revolutionary idea this is and how it alters the power dynamic of a game where oftentimes in the 80s, back when, you know, I weighed 115 pounds and wore a skinny black leather tie, um... There was a very antagonistic assumption between player and GM is, you know, the GM is going to try to give you a sadistic but fair set of puzzles and challenges to get through and anything less gets you derided as a Monty Hall GM. Uh, And the idea that, okay, well... James is running a Ars Magica arc this week for the next couple weeks. And so, all right, I'm going to be a companion in that. But after that, maybe I'll run something. And suddenly now it's no longer this vast power differential between me, uh, the player, and James, the GM. It's that, oh, in the future, I will be the GM and James will be the player. And now 
maybe we want to keep things a little more civil than yeah. they are in a killer GM antagonistic 1980s D&D game. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think um, one of the, the challenges of this game is the level of buy-in I think is the highest oh. of any of the games we've mm. talked about so far because while like Lancer for example requires every player to be knowledgeable of the rules and to pay attention when it's not their turn in combat so they can understand what is the optimal you know tactical move to make this game requires a huge degree of participation from every player both in knowledge of the rules and in storytelling uh, by creating the various characters that populate the covenant and sort of, and also especially if you're taking turns GMing. So it's, it's asking every, like um, I think one of the reasons why D and D is so popular with so many people is that there are levels of participation. Obviously the Mm. GM has to do the most work to set things up and to run the game. But like there's, you know, there are players who are very active and learn the rules and like, or players who are very engaged with the story and come up with backstory and like narrative prompts. And then the players who are just there to hang out and uh, shoot the breeze. And there are, which is fine, which is fine. But like, that player typically would stereotypically pick like the fighter class and just like roll to hit, you know, and not worry about spells. Specifically I'm thinking about uh, 13th age and it's like barbarian. You can be extremely efficient and not know very many rules at all. It's just like, Oh, I roll two D twenties and pick the best one. And that's great. Okay. I'm going to have a beer. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in my, in my, view of this game that's not really viable because if one person slacks off other people have to pick up the slack to really keep the level of play at least that's my impression of it having i have not played this game yeah unless they're playing the grog well that's the thing you can't just play the grog though like everyone could you couldn't you it's it's frowned on (laughs) plus you know if if everyone's being a mage and you're being the grog you know there's Comic relief only only goes so far, right? Um, you you can you want to be up at the same level. You want to be having the intelligent discourse about the schools of magic and what's yeah. going on, and um, or yeah. at least blow blow up the the uh, uh, dragon with a fireball when he, when you know uh, the chips are down. Creo uh, ignum. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, we should get back to the basic mechanics of the game. For night, for you know, being from 1987, pretty slick. Yeah, I Compared mean, are the rules... rules like game today? No, it's a dreadnought. So I, so I'm only looking at the basic mechanics of the game from fifth edition. I assume it is not fundamentally changed uh, in that it is rolling a d10, adding a characteristic and ability, and trying to hit an ease factor or a target number. So if you're Ability is six, uh, your characteristic is five, and then you roll a d10. Um, you know, that, that, that would be your roll, and you'd compare it against like what target number you're trying to get. And like zero is trivial, and 24 is almost impossible. Um, and the other thing is that you roll a stress die or dice, um, and which is another d10. And if that comes up a certain number, uh, then there's a chance of botching the role. Um, but also and, a chance yeah. for your success to explode. Yeah. Um, so I think that that those are the basic mechanics. And what the rules do is create 
like dozens of different types of rules to make, to research things, to cast spells, to make skill checks. And um, it's just the, the sort of older school of like, here's the basic mechanic. Now we're going to make th- hundreds of different little cases of exactly how this works. When, when I saw that there were different rules for encumbrance and burden, I, I kind of, yeah, I'm like, this is, this is very nineties. This is very eighties, nineties. This is the eighties and nineties in, in one book. It does feel, I don't, I mean, my memories of fourth edition, he says, patting his tattered copy fondly. Uh, <laughs> um, I haven't reread it and I don't want to, cause I'm afraid I'll find horrors in there. <laughs> reading reading fifth it felt a lot more detailed and a lot more mechanics heavy in that kind of way particularly the combat system than i remember fourth being um mm-hmm. and that you know as you just de- you described the base mechanic and that's great and apparently that's basically the mechanic that john tweet took forward and used in a lot of the thinking around what became dnd third edition which of course he was one of the lead designers on um you get to the combat system of 5th edition, which is substantially rewritten from 4th and to the degree that it now works. But, <laughs> my God, it's... For a game that's about magic, you do not need a tortuous, detailed combat system that goes into the minutiae of, you know... It, it, it does feel very, very old school of modifiers and modifiers on modifiers and, mm-hmm. and just... <sighs> it's, it's slow. Um mm-hmm. What you need, is, or what I would do if I was designing it, is a combat system that can occupy the grogs and possibly the companions, whether they're magical, if they're not magical, while the wizards are doing the, the big stuff. I have thoughts about the mechanics and about... Uh, and this is... Okay, have we covered what it does? Are we so. moving on to how it does it? Yeah. Because my, my note for how does it do it is as min-maxably as possible... Um, yeah. I, and... I, I just sorry. Can I just take one step back to talk uh-huh. about what, for one moment a bit more about the magic? Because it is essentially it's a massive magic system with, and everything revolves around that. Everything is there to serve this magic system that it has. And the magic system, yes, there are fifty pages of spells, but they are there primarily as examples of the kind of spells that you you and your mage can create. And there are the different schools of magic. There are the different houses. There are. It's based around Latin vocabulary. You take out. You were saying, what is it, Creo Ignum? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, my my character in the two year campaign we played was a uh, Intelligo Vis. Um, oh, man, you he, told me re- about this. Yeah, researching the nature of magic. He was useless um, <laughs> by design. I mean, he was probably the most intelligent man in the Covenant, and he had no useful spells. Um, and his his primary skill was taking the credit for things other people had done. He was he, he was the comic <laughs> relief. He was essentially a grog who was who happened to be a very powerful magician. <laughs> um, but um, yeah, and and it, it is designed for you to go in and just do stuff with that magic, and you know, create familiars and create magic items and enchant and just do stuff with it and manipulate it. And as you say, min max the heck out of it. And I pass so... it back to you. What I was going to say about its min-max ability is that, and again, we're getting back into my skinny leather tie observation that this was, you know, this is a a game from a different time. This Mm -hmm. is pre-trading card games, pre-Magic the Gathering, and 
you know, if you think about people who really love that kind of game, it's all about min-maxing, right? It's all about, okay, I'm going to get these optimum combinations that give me just a 10% more yield when... And, you know, and try and create some kind of life spiral where it's like, okay, now because I've set up these three cards, now this thing that normally would do X is doing X squared. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that is a kind of fun. And trading card games and computer games do that better than most role-playing games can. But that wasn't true in 1987. Uh, in 1987, this was your avenue for that kind of, I'm going to fiddle with it until I, you know, in, until I get something that busts loose. And mm-hmm. I think, I, I mean, I think the more I read it, the more I'm like, the complexity here is not unintentional, is not a flaw. This is a feature. And the, the way I kind of explained it to myself was, you know that those like multi hundred dollar giant Lego Millennium Falcon kits and the like. Mm-hmm. Nobody who buys one of those complains that it has too many pieces. the <laughs> The fiddliness is the point, and I think that's the same with Ars Magica. Is the fiddliness is the point, and if you are not going to enjoy. The idea of, oh man, yeah, what's going to be the real meat of this is, is, uh, you know, the, the seasons when my wizard isn't, isn't off dealing with mundane crap and can get in the lab and install more spells in his magic item and, you know, transform his familiar into a a bigger, more powerful, more intelligent form. That's going to be the sweet stuff. And I'm, I'm like, that I feel is, Maybe not all of the point, but certainly a very powerful point that may not be entirely visible just picking up the game and looking at it. I think, I mean, also uh, in the historical context, that was the style at the time of the 80s and 90s. Mm. Uh, Certainly D&D was uh, (laughs) a bit notorious for that, but also even like... Uh, you know, White Wolf comes around, changes the paradigm with Vampire the Masquerade, but what is Vampire what is the, the vampire stereotype now is that it's superheroes with fangs. Um, there's so many ways to min max your tortured, you know, uh, undead monster uh, to be, a, you know, much better at killing other undead monsters and vampires. Though to be real, not. it's all yeah. celerity or that Tremere shit. <laughs> exactly. See, uh, or <laughs> the uh, vicissitude, you know, from Shabbosay, you can get that aggro- aggravated damage easy with just touching people. Um, so, yeah, exactly. Uh, uh, there's nothing to say ab- about that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, you might. Um, <laughs> and there's nothing to say of the less well designed systems like Palladium and its notorious power gaming. Um, but so, yeah, I think that th- this is just what, like, to a degree it's it's a it's part of its time and that was just that's what a role-playing game was uh back then i think uh is that it you had to have a big ass rule book and lots of fiddly bits so you could min max your stuff because that's just what games were i think oh, but um but, uh, but, but wait no because first edition and second and i used to have second edition mm-hmm. um though they were much smaller books they were much thinner oh, okay. books than this Third was a reasonable side, and then fourth and fifth edition are the bloaters. Um, Ouch. Four, 
Fourth yeah. is 272 pages, and the one that we have oh, God. in front of us... Uh, says, it's 240, I believe. 240, 240, yeah. but it is in teeny-weeny eye-strain-o-vision, and... Yeah, I, mean, I was I reading a PDF. Yeah. I found it... I found it very ironic that this game where most of the people who are, where a large section of its demo is probably going to be people in their 40s and 50s, is printed in a typeface so small. Uh, I'm sorry, it just, it hurt me. It hurt me to look at those tiny words. I, I wonder if the 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 bloat of the rules, as, as you mentioned, or you know the the expansion of the physical size of the book and the page count, um, maybe also uh, a change in editorial policy because of change of publishers. You know, like mm. maybe a new. The, you know, I know uh, White Wolf did publish this at one point, I believe third edition. So maybe they're like, well, we got to bring it. In. I mean, I know there was an attempt to bring. It in line, it's lore in line with the the um, world of darkness because the there's, the darkness, the, so. there's tr- the Tremere in mythic Europe and there's so, the Tremere in Vampire the Masquerade. So the publisher was like, "Well, we know what sells is you know lots of cool powers and spells and stuff. So we're going to add some cool powers and spells and stuff because that that will move books in bookstores." Though, so uh, does it stores. look like yeah. a splat book? Does it look like a 90s uh, World of Darkness book with lots of lore presented by unreliable narrators? Because I, 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 certainly the main rule book doesn't. I mean, you'd have to look at third edition to see. Uh, I mean, yeah, so first uh, edition was Lion Rampant. Third edition was White Wolf. Fifth edition. Fourth. Fifth edition is Atlas. Fourth, fourth and fifth. Fourth also Atlas. Fourth was laid out and produced by White Wolf, then abandoned, and Atlas, playing its role as the home for Wayward Games, came in and kind of scooped it up and said, there, there, mm. all is well, little one, no one will harm you again. Yes. <laughs> let's let's talk. I mean, I'm, I'm aware that we've been teetering on the border between what does it do and how does it do it mm. for a while, but let, let, let's just talk for a moment about the pedigree of, of where this game came from. It came out of Minnesota in 1987, out of a bunch of people who'd mostly been at St. Olaf's College together, which does not sound, you know, and I think there was a shared house involved and they set up this company to do this game. But your core designers are Jonathan Tweet. We've already mentioned 13th Age. We've mentioned D&D 3rd Edition. You know, Over one of the, the primary edge. designers of the night. Over the Edge. A major, major designer in what we think of role-playing games today. And Mark Reinhagen, who created Vampire the Masquerade. They are the named designers. At the same time, around them, also working on this and working on other things, you have Lisa Stevens. Employee, first, I believe, full-time employee at Wizards of the Coast. Paizo, created Paizo, still I think runs Paizo, or at least in, still involved at a senior level. You have Nicole Lindrus, who is half of Green Ronin Publishing. And you have John Nephew, who founded Atlas Games. You've essentially got, still, most of the modern role-playing scene, or everyone responsible for creating its roots, mm-hmm. in one tiny shared house working on the same role-playing game in 1987. So it's hardly any any wonder that when it came out, it won the Origins Award. It won the the audience choice or the people's choice. In ni- and that was, you know, 
new games from tiny little publishers did not do that for the Origins Award. This was back in the days when it was kind of easy to stuff the Origins Award ballot. So it was a major surprise <laughs> when this thing came out. And, and, and you know, I don't know if it ran away with it. No, voting totals never revealed. But um, it's an extraordinary pedigree. The caliber mm-hmm. of, of, of people, I've probably missed someone, you know, at least one of the names. Um, so hardly any wonder that we can see echoes of it in Vampire and uh, in, in D&D 3 and a whole bunch of other systems as, as well. Which is not even getting into the question of people who worked on it who then slingshot it away from it, where it's like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm thinking of Everway, which is in many yeah. ways the anti-Ars Magica. Oh, okay, Ars Magica has this very specific setting and these very mechanistic rules. Let's do a game that has a very broad open setting and very uh, gestural impressionistic rules. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> um, no, no, no. I mean, that's it, it, this is the kind of material um, that is sort of important to understand the context of this game. It's like if you found there was one band where after they broke up, their founding members went on to be in the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and the Mm -hmm. Rolling Stones. And what's interesting, yeah, and like a lot of the ideas that are in uh, Ars Magica uh, never, like again, the troop style system, um, just sort of like, they. so you kind of view this game as kind of like, their early experiment into more into uh, new rule systems and new ideas for games. Uh, and then they get this feedback uh, from the fans and then they kind of like, <laughs> I guess maybe they're like, well, we can't go this far apparently. And so they release uh, uh, more acceptable games uh, for the masses. I mean, that's, that's a cynical way of looking at mm. it, but just looking, I'm looking at the history of it on, on the Wikipedia and they talk about how ours Magica viewed mage, the Ascension as Ours in the modern world, mm-hmm. but doesn't have covenant rules to, uh, you know, it, every it's every Tremere for himself or every uh, wizard for themselves. Well, they in, they have. Uh, I mean, every White Wolf game had some like uh, I know in Vampire the Masquerade they're called coteries, which is basically oh, here's yeah. your group of uh, here's your cell of murder hobos. That's you. <laughs> Here's your, and here's your clan that yeah. you are, uh, you know, sullenly. Well, you can all against. be from different clans, so you can all pick whatever cool clan power you you know you want. You want, uh, but like you're in this coterie together, so you all have a reason to trust and fight together. Um, and so that that sort of core element of like, um, actually, you know, there are some important things with ours. Like you have different um, houses of magicians, each with a different theme and history. And then White Wolf took that idea and sort of like, well, now it's vampires with clans. And then like, let's build that out. Let's do splats. Tribes people, with people werewolves. People like splats. And, you know, mm-hmm. people like splats because splats work. Yeah. Um, splats I mean, are a nice balance between getting you a degree of sophistication where your character doesn't just feel like, oh, you have two stats mm-hmm. uh, without having to, okay. So you are going to bake the apple pie of your character. The first thing you're going to have to do is plant some wheat that you will eventually mill into flour to make your crust. And plant an apple tree while you're at it. 
Yeah, but like you can see, like how uh, the gears, you know, something clicked in uh, uh, Margaret Hagen's head of like, oh wow, I like uh, this idea, and so he just sort of replicated it uh, to a degree with Vampire the Masquerade um, using D10s, and again the different clans or houses or tribes or whatever i forgot what they're called and uh traditions in mage traditions yeah yeah i never played mage so which is probably the most ars magica like of the Mm -hmm. world of darkness Mm -hmm. games yeah that's my hot take people that's my my flaming (laughs) radical opinion i'm gonna die on this hill you know since we're in how the game does what it does Uh i mentioned this is sort of like a big picture game where it's about Mm. a place over a long period of time um what I like to know, James, is like in in the since you actually played a campaign of it, um, yeah. what the actual average game session would be like in terms of like because it seems to me that there's a lot of bookkeeping in this game of like what your wizard does this season and like what your companions are doing and what your grogs are doing. Is it like that, or do you kind of change focus? Like um, because there's a lot of like oh your wizard's researching for winter let's find out how well he does make one roll or two rolls and then that's that's how well his research goes um, um there, there was some of that um mostly we did um it was we didn't play it exactly by the book and we did mm-hmm. kind of the long narrative i'm not going to say dnd esque but traditional role play kind of campaigns of there was a huge adventure to go off and and retrieve some some stones, which we thought would be two, a couple of small stones, and turned out to be obelisks. Nice um, from, from the <laughs> lands of the Fey, <laughs> you know. So not you know, which is the other thing we've not mentioned. It's not just mythic Europe. It's there are all these other realms as as well. You know, there's the, the infernal, and- exactly heaven and hell. It's it's all in there, and we had to do that, and that was huge fun. And I think that was at least half a year. I'm going to estimate probably thirty thirty five sessions of play, and then we got back, and then there was a huge, da- almost an evening of just doing downtime and, and just kind of working through the repercussions <laughs> of all of that, uh-huh. and and mm-hmm. what we did next and what we learned from it. Um, but we, none of us were particularly bookkeeping types. Um, I mean, this the, re- all- the real fey obelisks were the friends we made along the way. <laughs> This was uh, the one, I, can't, I can't remember if I've said this was. I, I mentioned my character's, you know, thing was was taking the credit, mm-hmm. um, having basically been. He did he did some useful stuff along along the way, but he also got in the way an awful lot. But we returned to the government covenant, having slogged these bloody things literally hundreds of miles, um, and he just runs ahead and goes, "I have returned with the stones," and everyone <laughs> go, and makes his role, and everyone just goes. Good on you! You're amazing! And <laughs> nobody else gets any credit for having done it. Um, so very few friends were made along the way, I can tell you. <laughs> Alright, um, so what what was your grog and your companion like in that game? Or did you just play the wizard? Uh, no, I, I had a companion and I can remember nothing about them at all. Wow. Literally, I've been searching my memory. Nothing. My File grog, not found. My grog was a member of the local crime family who had incurred some kind of debt of honour, mostly in his head, to the Covenant and was therefore using the family's connections to make sure that the Covenant was safe because this was... Our version was, you know, the the, the Christian folk did not like the the magic-y folk and were mm-hmm. looking for excuses to, to find us and burn us, basically. Mm-hmm. Um, so the Covenant had to be protected quite hard. 
Um, and this was all set in the north of England, where the GM was, I believe, originally from. And uh, mm-hmm. yes, it, it was. I mean, there was his, the historical detail was lovely touches, but it could have been set al- almost anywhere. Right. It's just the fact. Occasionally, he'd mention a, a he'd mention a place name. Oh, I've driven through there. I, I kind of know <laughs> what that'll be like in eight hundred years' time. Mm-hmm. Um, it was. Oh, oh, good. We're going to Scarfuck. <laughs> It was yes, there were there were elements of of um, yeah reavers as well reavers coming down across the Scottish borders and and basically causing havoc. Um, it was great. There was always a sense of danger. There was always we were never allowed to become complacent and just get on with our lovely magicy bookkeeping. Nice. Um, there was always stuff that needed to be done to protect the covenant. Sometimes against reavers, sometimes against locals, sometimes against the church, sometimes against other magicians. And it was it was. It just it kind of petered out, like uh, so many campaigns do. Sure. Um, but it is huge fond memories. Um, it worked remarkably well. We didn't shift GMs around. It was the same GM for the whole thing. Um, I've mentioned it before. Patrick Brady. He was one of the lead designers on the uh, Guardian uh, Guardians of Order um, Tecumel okay. game. Mm-hmm. game. Ah. Um, which is something I would love to talk about in a future podcast, uh-huh. Hint Oh, are, are we doing that now? Because, man, I'm telling you, I got my copy of Thousand-Year-Old Vampire. Well, we got, we got three episodes left for uh, uh, listeners to vote on. Uh, so, All right. Uh, Wonder, uh, home. This Wonder is, Home. Yeah. Um, this, this, is, this is a little bit of a, a, a digression, but okay, Ross, if you were mm-hmm. going if to, if I came to you and I'm like, we're playing Ars Magica, what would your character concepts be for your wizard companion and Grog? So I think with the, uh, I had not actually thought about this until you prompted me right before we started recording, but um, I think I would play the, my magus, uh, my wizard would be the house, the mystery cult house. Uh, Cause that mm-hmm. sounds neat. Um, uh, yeah. And, I don't, I can't find which one it is. I'm looking at the houses right now. Um, anyways, it would be that one. One of the, yeah, the mystery cult one. Um, and, oh, here it is. House, uh, Kryaman. Uh, I think my companion, now the companions are interesting because they can't have supernatural abilities. And the example ones they had, uh, but they don't have to be. But like, uh, one of the example companions they mentioned was like a woman who wanted to be a knight. And so she was a skilled fighter. Uh, and because uh, companions tend to be uh, misfits or outcasts from society, people with unusual skills and backgrounds, um, they can be apprentices, but that's not necessarily the best kind of companion. So I was thinking either probably like some guy who's a, like a werewolf and he's just trying to get Sweet. cured from that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, yeah, Grog, I would just now I, I do love uh, peasant funnel adventures from like Dungeon Crawl Classics where you herd a group of level zero peasants into a dungeon and see who how many of if any survive um so yeah i would i would just i would make a lot of grogs and i would treat them like my delta green characters uh and uh see how see if any of them survive and be slightly disappointed if they do um wow uh if it was me i also think i i was also kriamon sounded like the most interesting one uh the dudes who change into the shape of their heart animal, I'm like, that could be pretty cool. You know, I could turn into a horse whenever I want to. But, and I'm like, oh, but then I couldn't have a familiar. And I, I kind of like the idea of the wizard who's just got, 
only you understand me, my wizard familiar. I'm going to teach you how to transform into a human so I don't have to deal with normal humans. Uh, It could could get gross, but it also could be uh, very interesting and very funny. But I wasn't that interested in making a wizard. The character I'm like, oh, here's who I want to play is the 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 christian priest who is attached to the covenant and they they had this as an example and it's mm-hmm. like the priest who is in love with some other companion but can't act on it because it will ruin his vow of chastity i'm like i would take that and I would ham it up, and it would just be, oh, no, we dasn't, tis forbidden by the Lord. And I, I would just roll around uh, like a, a happy pig in a sty. Uh, and for a grog, um, my my thought for a grog would be like this crabby old woman who's not a fighter, but is just like the the covenant laundress, but mm-hmm. she's been there since it was founded, and is such a fixture that she can actually talk back to the wizards without being, you know, creo ignumed into an early grave. That she's just like the, uh, you know, oh, that's just her way. We just get a, we, we don't, we don't try and stop her being rude to the wizards. They're okay with it because no one else can get their bed sheets so so white. Uh, so I think that. Yeah. I think it'd be a treat. Good help. And she would would talk like one of the pepper pots from Monty Python uh, (laughs) with, with a fake English accent that would probably make James bite through his own flesh. Oh my God. I've heard so many bad ones. I bet you have, but not this, but not mine (laughs) yet. It's it's true. Most people who do bad English accents around me are trying to do good English accents. You would be trying to do a bad English accent, and I think that would that would be excruciating. <laughs> you people say cooey all the time, right? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> but the reason I hadn't thought about this is because um, this is the kind of game you know, uh, James. You mentioned several, a few of the games we've we've uh, reviewed uh, are not your your kind of game, and Ars Magica is definitely not my kind of game. So I don't ever picture myself playing this game. Now now Uh, unpack that for me, Ross, because I know you've done games that are uh, rain-based where it's like, okay, we're Mm -hmm. going to follow not just, uh, as you said earlier, a group of murder hobos, but uh, some sort of larger social clique or Mm -hmm. movement. And our Smagica has that. It's like your covenant will develop and it is bigger and more important than any one character. So what um, is it you, that that makes you think this is not your kind of game? Is it just the, the finickiness of the mechanics? Oh, no, no, it's not the mechanics. Uh, I mean, I haven't like the mechanics aren't like a plus factor, but I've dealt with more complicated games. So um, the, 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 it comes down to two things. One is I know this would be a very hard sell with my group because uh, none of them are real high fantasies. Actually, any kind of fantasy, especially in a medieval uh, uh, style setting like D and D, is uh, with our group uh, at this point. And Thirteenth Age is not much better. And mm. this, we're not really. No one's really interested in that period of history in terms of role playing. Um, and. Uh, 
All right, that's the, strike one. Yeah. Um, the other thing is, is uh, for me, um, is a lot of the, the, the setting stuff, which we haven't talked about specifically, which are the realms. In particular, how it treats the divine realm and also how it treats wizards with the gift. Uh, the gift... Uh, in the setting means that uh, wizards automatically exude this aura that alienates mundane people. Uh, you're born with your gift. You, you, it's not chosen. Um, and if you have the gift growing up, people just inherently dislike you, except for other people with the gift. Uh, and I believe... And some people who are like immune to its ill effects. I didn't like the gift because, uh, to expand on that, uh, I don't like the gift because I really hate the chosen one trope uh, in fiction that only certain people who are born or destined can receive powers or, you know, they're just, they're just automatically better than other people because not because of something they've done just because of circumstance. Um, I mean, that's basically the major tech. I literally wrote a game base Raiders that is uh, saying, fuck that trope. Uh, anyone <laughs> can have superpowers if they, if they, if they strive to get them and they're willing to take the enough risk to get them. Um, that's literally what base Raider is about. And you can't, you can't be born like Batman or Superman. You can just go out and get your, you can superpowers just steal yourself. yourself some Batman. Yeah, exactly. Well, or suit your super well, soldier drugs and become and, Captain America. Yeah. And this uh, is, uh, you know, one of my notes was, is Ars Magica spiritually elitist and undemocratic? Is well, it? yeah, because it's medieval. Like it's, ah. it's very medieval, <laughs> um, and it's uh, well, at least it reads medieval to me. I don't. I'm not, again. I don't have a degree in medieval history, so I can't. But it seems that way, given what I know of medieval history and like what medieval people thought of the world and what they thought of their of the cosmology. And so, so you uh, cannot goes, get rid of the. These are the people who deliver our pizzas and fight and die in our wars. Well, aspect it's it. no, it's more like that that Christianity, Judeo Christian uh, uh, religions are objectively true and right. <laughs> like, um, there's like the divine realm says God is real and he's he's just barely tolerating your wizard shit. Uh, <laughs> like. I don't like the uh, like I do that's yeah. cute. <laughs> exactly. Um it's like for one thing uh uh one game that the main book doesn't address at all uh is that just just off the top of my head medieval Christians killed each other a whole lot and they mm. don't even address that like uh are heretics of the divine realm uh, Cathars, the Gnostics, like all those people were they, you know, all the ones that the church, you know, the inquisition was, uh, running around up and running at this point. Um, is that of the divine realm? If you go into the torture chamber of an inquisitor or, or you see a witch burning, are you not going to be able to interfere because, uh, uh, the divine realms aura or, uh, I believe it's called, um, uh, Regio or whatever it is, uh, weakens your magic. Your yeah. Or dampens your magic weakens it. So like, um, it's, it, I don't know. I just, I, 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 uh, can't, I, that kind of game where it's in a, it's a game from a medieval perspective. And, um, that's not interesting to me as okay. a player. I don't want to, I don't want to explore that mindset. Um, right. it's fascinating and interesting, but I like, I, yeah. 
It's fascinating and interesting for other people. Yeah, for other people. But I don't want to do a game where it's like, yeah, those the the church uh, commanded the the local lord to go burn down that village because they're praying the wrong way. So uh, and you can't interfere. So I guess all those women and children are getting burned to death. Um, you know, that's <laughs> I don't know. I, I I find that kind of game of uh, I think. Uh, yeah, rather play Delta Green. Yeah, well, Delta Green's all about <laughs> confronting that whore. It's like, do we kill the? Yeah, do we kill all these civilians in order to stop the thing from eating the planet? Uh, or at least we think so. We're not sure. Uh, Delta Green's about uncertainty, ambiguity, and shades of gray. Ah, so you don't like and, the the unambiguous nature of? Oh no, God's totally real, and we God's can totally prove real. It. God's totally real, and also he's okay with the faithful killing each other. Um, <laughs> angels are real, but they're not going to stop the Inquisition. Like, I don't mm, I don't understand that. Uh, right. if, if they had made a game where there is a, the, the wizards are not fighting the church because the church is too power politically, that would make sense. But to say that it has supernatural properties that are observable and repeatable that they're, you know, empirically true and real. Um, but without addressing the inherent, you know, contradictions of doctrine, um, you know, to say that not just Christianity, but, uh, you know, Judaism and Islam are both also of the divine realm, but they're at war with each other. Um, do angels pick sides in the crusades? Like, um, I don't know. It, it, a lot, too many questions that would come up too quickly in this game for me to. Okay. Uh, yeah. Would you play Ars Magica if you had expressed all of these reservations and concerns and discontents to the GM, and the GM said, "Okay, I'm gonna run a game that is steering straight into that, where you are a wizard asking these hard questions and." you know, fed up to your neck with the church's uh, claiming gods on its side and actually basking in the divine while doing all these shitty things, would that be a good game for you? Or are you just like, you know what? I just want to leave the whole thing on the shelf. Well, if the divine realm was house ruled, like, I mean, as the rules are, the divine realm is... is wins every every confrontation with other realms like mm. wizards cannot defeat the divine uh in certain except in less in when it's sufficiently strong enough you can't like cast a fireball on a cathedral uh the, the realm is too strong uh at least that is my interpretation of it i'm so, trying to uh, I think- it's it's the presence of the realm itself that it has magical well greater than magical powers um so yeah that 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 would be so it would be have to be so heavily house ruled that would it be a different game um yeah. i think i think the nature of the the system is that it does lend itself to that kind of house rule as i said okay. the, you know the version we played it was you know the church was actively hostile to to the covenants which did you I use the think, divine realm rules a lot or was that part oh, of we did, yeah thing? it's like okay. you cannot do any form of magic near anything that is holy holy yeah. just cancels it. it it is divine tipex yeah um and 
Yeah, and it was it was a really interesting force. We didn't explore it in any kind of philosophical way, but I think the room is there that you can do that. And particularly if you're using this alternating GMs or switching GMs thing, that if somebody mm. wants to focus in on something, they can switch the focus of the, of the campaign for a while um, and, and bring those questions to bear. But also, we did just have dialogues as mages talking about the nature of the universe and how things worked from our perception. And that was... An interesting way to to role play. That was that was fun. Mm-hmm. You know, the campaign was not progressing, but we were we were enjoying ourselves and exploring our our characters and and going in a, a bit deeper. I mean, to, to take a step back, there's two ways you can look at it. You can either go, well, all of this stuff has come up because this is the fifth edition of of a game, and it's just kind of it's built on and built on and built on what's gone before, like mm-hmm. you know, the modern cities built on the ruins of medieval cities and so on and so forth, and his all kind of legacy things, and it's never been quite worked through. But David Chart, who was the developer on 5th edition, and has been writing for Ars Magica since 2nd edition, um, is has a PhD in the philosophy of science. He is a guy who thinks about stuff um, and thinks about the nature of things. And I think there's an element in, in within 5th edition that you're kind of... These elements are there to confront if you want to. You can you can bring these things to the fore and you can explore them within the context of the game if if you want to. Um, mm-hmm. I used to know David. I, I wouldn't say reason really well, but uh, you know we were. He was living in the UK at the time. He's um, over in Japan now, um, permanently, I think. Um, but uh, yes, he's he's a thoroughly thoughtful person. This is. I, I get the impression that pretty much everything in, in Ars Magica 5 is there for a reason. Mm-hmm. It is not there simply for legacy issues. Yeah, I mean, and also, to be fair to this game, like, there are um, over 40 supplements for 5th edition, is my understanding. At least that's yes. what it says on its drive-through page. And so per, I would be highly surprised if some of these supplements do not address some of the issues that I've had uh, with the main game. But um, so, yeah, there, the, yeah. Uh, but that, that, that's why this game is not for me. Uh, that's why I don't, I would not be highly motivated to run a campaign of it, uh, among the fact that my players definitely wouldn't want to play a campaign of it, um, for the reasons I've sort of outlined. Um, but yeah, um, it, it's, a, a fascinating game. Um, Greg, do you think you would run a campaign of it anytime? Oh, I would be more tempted to strip out the good bits and put it in probably a one roll engine thing. You know, I'd run it with rain, but with a specific magic system where it's like, Oh, okay. You've got, uh, you know, three dice in Intello and two in animal. And, but I could, uh, you know, being a, uh, having had decades of Bible study with, uh, intellectually curious friends, yeah, I think I could run a very uh, deep and interesting and uh, intellectually and emotionally challenging game based around, okay, if God is real and we can prove his presence because he uh, you know, nerfs our magic every time we go in the cathedral, why is the church able to do all these crappy, crappy things? I think I could handle that. With uh, you know, some verve and a plum. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yeah, that sounds really interesting. Yeah, man, I mean, it'd be a ton of work, though. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, God, that'd be a jo- 
That'd be a fucking job, I think man. That's also another reason why the game is not for me because, again, it, like I mentioned, the buy-in. Like mm. everyone, um, because you're not just making a grog, well, a wizard, a companion, and at least one grog. You're you're sort of, I mean, how much did uh, James when you were in a campaign? How much did you did all the players contribute to building the covenant in terms of like uh, figuring out its story? Um, not really the game okay. was, we we had a gm who loved doing that kind of stuff and we were very happy to let him do it for us um <laughs> and it was and it was a delight and his stuff was better than what we could have come up with because he knew the area and uh, either is. he knew the history of the area or he was really good at making it up um okay but um yeah no we just we mostly mugged it. we had fun with our characters it was uh, it was a very character-based campaign uh, the one we played um which i i think is you know, if I were to go back to it, um, would be kind of the, the the way I approached it. I, I think it's a really interesting way of juxtaposing characters of, on a very basic level, different power levels, but also, um, you know, different class structures, different, the way they perceive the universe is completely different. Um, and juxtaposing that and having fun with that is really, it, it's done right with a good GM. It's absolutely delightful. Plus, as as I've said, you know, along with I would say Ron Edwards Sorcerer, it's one of the great games with that isn't just a list. Take a step back. It's one of the great games with a magic system that isn't just a big list of spells. Mm-hmm. It it really explores magic. It encourages you to do interesting things with with magic. Um, to you know, to to kind of interrogate almost the, the nature of it, and I think everything that you've been saying about you know the conflict between the between the realms, the nature of God, that that all enters into it. Um, and if you like playing wizards, and wizards are all you you ever play, you really should play Ars Magica at some point um, because you can deep dive on this stuff in a, in a really lovely, delightful, and re- rewarding way. Um, but I've done it and I came out the other side and I, I kind of, I don't feel I have to go back. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm at the stage where earlier this evening on a train, in fact, I came up with a game where all the players are restaurant cricket critics. And <laughs> I think that's what I'm doing next. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah. Oh, it, it's good. It's good. Trust me. <laughs> we trust you, James. Mm-hmm. One of the things I will note about the historicity of Ars Magica is that it, their fifth edition pays at least lip service, probably more than lip service, to the idea that, okay, just do what's right for your group. And if you are ignorant about this era in history and all the players in GM are at an equal level of ignorance, just go with whatever you think is right. Because, you know, once you throw dragons on top of something... Realism has been smothered to some extent already. On the other hand, if you are all, uh, you know, miniature Ken Heights who uh, adore history and voraciously study it, that can only make your game stronger as long as you don't turn it into a pissing match about, well, actually, the Anabaptists believed this at that time before the... the, the so, I mean, it's always a danger when you know a lot about something to use that knowledge to ruin your fun, but it is also perfectly possible to use that knowledge to enhance your fun. Um, yeah. 
I'm trying to remember which game it was. I was running something and I had, uh, you know, pulled out a plan that I think it, it might have been biology or mycology or something. It was probably Delta Green. Mm-hmm. And it turned out that one of the players knew a lot about this. And I'm like, cool. What I want you to do with that is find a way to make this more believable and more interesting without fucking up my shit. Mm-hmm. You know, <laughs> get, you know, help me make this game better instead of finding a way to fight against the... You know, the narrative, yeah. To fight against the narrative, yeah. I'm like, make oh, your... Yeah. You know, I, I, I welcome your input and expertise to make this stuff that I know you're going to say couldn't happen for like six reasons, but think of reason, you know, think of one reason it could. And, you know, once they got in that, that mindset where it wasn't antagonistic, but cooperative, it worked great. I think that's the reason why, like the R's players who really stick with it, the fan base, uh, I think they're all of that mindset because what I see, I read a bunch of discussions about uh, R's Magica, um, in preparation for this episode. And there's a, there were, there were two categories of comments when people were talking about it in general. And like one was, Oh yeah, I've heard of that game. That sounds, it's really interesting. I've never played it. And the other one of course was, Oh yeah, I've had a 20 year campaign. It's the greatest experience of my life. It's the greatest game ever made. And I love it. <laughs> um, there, there was no in between. There was either <laughs> never played it or it's the greatest game I've ever played. And the greatest game that has ever been written. There is uh, no middle class. There are there no, no middle Ars class. Magica <laughs> casuals yeah it's a um, you make it sound like a cult yeah uh, because <laughs> the the kind of people who play it are the kind of people who are not going to be adversarial about it i think mm-hmm. um and uh they they're really engaged in this uh, uh mythic europe and they want to find out what happens to the covenant um over over decades a saga uh, a generational saga really i it does um, seem to be optimized for long-term epic fantasy and if like mm-hmm. it's like if you do not like if you are not a hundred percent on board with any part of that, if you're not on board with long term, if you're not on board with epic, if you're not on board with fantasy, you are gonna you are gonna struggle with Ars Magica. But if mm-hmm. you like all three of those, if you're in the sweet spot where that those three circles overlap, this is gonna be a delicacy for you. And just to, to jump one further stage further on, I get the impression that fifth edition. My feeling reading through it is that 5th edition is aimed at people who already love Ars Magica. It, ah. it's, it's streamlining the existing, the stuff in 4th. It's, it's polishing, it's, it's expanding where necessary, it's fixing the combat system. But it didn't feel like a great introduction to it, to me. Um, mm-hmm. I, I think 4th fourth, fourth is a terrific introduction. I've not read 3rd. 2nd was, was very good, but it's now very of its time. Well, I think... Um talking about yeah so this game the fifth edition came out in 2004 um and looking at its publication history the uh, atlas games were officially made publications up the last one they did uh was 2016 but it, since then there have been a stream of fan publications made with atlas's uh blessing uh, or sanction uh that have been made available um including one that was released this year so people are still making uh material for the game 
and uh, clearly still playing it. Um, there's still active discussions about it. And uh, yeah, so it's got this, it's, it's also kind of, uh, I wonder if this is a, a generational thing in terms of um, this is a game that you have to play dozens of sessions in over a long period of time. And uh, these are longer game sessions. Like maybe this is like more of an artifact of the nineties and earlier um, because certainly um, now while the longest campaign I will run now is like 20 to 30 sessions at most in each session being like three, maybe four hours at longest. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And uh, a lot of these are online, uh, which limits uh, in terms of complexity. I'm not using virtual tabletops. Uh, so uh, yeah, I think there's been kind of a shift in, what the expectation of what a session is and what, how much, how much time you need to invest in the game to get, to get uh, fully get your return to realize the peak of this game, the top of this game, to get it. Yeah. To get it. Um, yeah. Some games are one session. Uh, a lot of horror games are. Uh, Dueling yeah. Fops was built mm-hmm. to do one session. Uh, million this- dollar soulmate built to do one session. Some games can be done in both, uh, and some games are clearly meant only for longer campaigns. Um, and this is I th- obviously sort of I think peak. <laughs> you need to really invest in this game uh, to, to yeah, get your enjoyment. You're, out you're of no it. casuals. Yeah. It's a no mm-hmm. casuals game, and I am shocked yeah. and dismayed looking at Fourth Edition to see that I think the typeface is even more cramped than Fifth. <laughs> Holy cow! <laughs> It's wildly up and down. There are places where it's really tiny, and then there are places where it's really big and massively leaded as well. It, yeah, it's the layout has never been great. Um, it's it's never been particularly strong, mm-hmm. uh, which is a real shame because it, it deserves a, a layout that that lets it it sing. I'm, I'm going to go do a, a little kind of a, a rant. I think the mechanics the mechanics are fine, but I, I have this. Thing I talk about the difference between mechanics and structure, um, mm-hmm. and you know it's the difference between a car's engine and a car's chassis. Right. Uh, th- what makes Ars Magica special is the structure. This this idea of troop play, the idea of being able to to cook your own magic out of within their existing system, but to en- you know you come up with the spells, you come up with what you want to follow and what disciplines you want to to perfect, mm-hmm. and um, all the rest of that. I think that's what really makes it particularly interesting. Well, it doesn't seem there's a lot of support in or like in terms of the rules of like here's how a troop session should go. I mean, mm. I think maybe this is going back to your comment about how this is uh, a game for existing fans. Yes, uh, I think this is like, for people who already know how to run the game. How exactly. The game like I didn't see there's not much in 5th edition to like here's how you structure this game. Certainly like um, you know, my friend uh, Caleb wrote Red Markets, and Red Markets has a very clear game structure that is very well defined in in the written uh, rules of the game, which is like, first you start out with the home life of the character, then you go into bidding on a job to get the highest price, uh, then you research the job, then you go on the jo- go to the job, then you do the job, and then you come back. Um, and, and so, like, 
Come back, try not to cry about the job, cry about the job a lot. (laughs) Yeah, spend all your money to to heal your emotion, you know, uh, heal your emotional trauma as best you can. That Um, is also uh, Blades in the Dark, right? Yeah, Blades in the Dark, as we we talked about, has a very clear, this, we do this session, this phase of the game, this phase of the game. And that's a more recent thing, um, like D&D, third, fourth, and fifth doesn't doesn't really have that as clearly um and a lot of role yeah so this is sort of like uh, I think a maybe back, the last five years back to yeah. powered by the apocalypse where mm-hmm. it's the gm's role is solid it is you know you the players do x and that triggers you choosing between uh, some form of y uh as mm-hmm. opposed to much more fluid games like Arts Magica and other older games where it's like, okay, as GM, you just have this broad mandate to create a story framework through which the players will fall like pachinko balls careening off pegs. Right. But there's not really like, yeah, so in 5th edition at least, there's not like here's when you should do a grog session. Here's when you should do a companion session or here's when you should alternate to your wizards. Or there's, Mm. there's never really like, um, do your bookkeeping at the beginning of the game, uh, about like what your wizard was researching and see how well they're doing. Yeah. Yeah, um, No, I can see how that would 100% make this much, much less opaque for the noob and require much less, of yeah. a cultish uh, <laughs> sense of, uh, uh, well, I just, I've played enough Ars Magica that I can run it now because I have a instinctive sense of how a session goes and how sessions form together like, to mm-hmm. build a campaign. Okay, yeah. I, I, I love the idea of the troop, but um, I would love to see a better structured troop system uh in a game where because think about like a lot of your favorite television shows where it's not just like here's the main character um no there's like a cast of characters i mean most like uh comedies and dramas they'll have like you know an a plot a b plot and maybe even a c plot running through Mm -hmm. um and so uh so that everyone can know to to dread the joey episodes (laughs) <laughs> well, I mean, you know, think of like, uh, you know, I recently watched Squid Game and uh, Squid Game is a very popular show on Netflix following a lot of characters. There's one main point of view character, but we alternate to another point of view character at certain times, actually several characters. So we follow multiple plot threads uh, as we're and certainly as characters are killed in the show. Um, <laughs> we we yeah, you would have to have some sort of system of, of jumping between them. So, um, because yeah, if you, if you're like, I made this character in this, my, our squid game RPG and then, oh, well he got killed in the first game. Great. Uh, now I'm useless for the rest of the campaign. Um, so you would need the troop system would be a great way of handling that. But, um, actually, boy, that, that actually maps on really well. Uh, now that I think about it, um, mm-hmm. Have you seen the Squid Game? Because I have uh, not. It sounds well, like the, too much of a bummer. I can I can depress myself without Netflix's help. Yeah, but it's a really good bummer. You feel terrible <laughs> and cathartic at the same time. I watched the first two, but I'd watched Alice in Borderland, which is also mm-hmm. a Netflix series with a remarkably similar premise. Um, not the not the your 
playing insane games to win a lot of money, but you are trapped in a place uh, being forced to play games in which you you can die. Mm-hmm. And you, mostly what the audience are trying to do is work out what the hell's going on. Yeah. Um, it's it's very... And I watched that, and I just got massive deja vu from Squid Game. So yeah. I, have, I have not gone back to it. So, yeah. The algorithm true- has decided... God, a true battle royale game would be perfect because then you could have a contestant or contestants, uh, but also the guards, the staff. Uh, then you mm. could even have infiltrators uh, or people working to undermine the game, um, or investigators trying to learn the mystery of it, uh, and then like the VIPs, uh, the, the 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 leaders, the people behind it. Why are they doing this? Well, I'm why, sold. Yeah. Have a proposal yeah. on my desk by <laughs> next Monday morning. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah. I think I think I found an idea. Um, so but yeah. It, it, so Anyways. so you're you're proposing troop style. Okay, so it needs to have troop in the title. Uh, mm-hmm. hmm, or something. Well, like the genre that. is battle royale because that's the, the name so of the it's movie it's that, battle yeah. royale. It's Squid Game, Mockingjay. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. that, that kind of thing. It's, you mm-hmm. know, everybody loves the idea of teenagers being forced to grow up by murdering one another. Um, All right. did yep. you ever read Jared Sorensen's The Farm? Uh, no. Have you heard no, about me. this? No. Uh, it's, it's a, a mini, kind of an experimental mini game from the 90s. And the premise is that you're all characters who have been kidnapped to a, uh, a private island owned by a group of millionaires. And as you're, you're coming out of your drug-induced comas, they're like, okay, so here's the deal, man. We need you to eat and exercise because the only pleasure our jaded, hypertrophic capitalist souls can enjoy anymore is cannibalism and hunting humans for sport. Mm-hmm. So eat up. Eventually, we are going to run you down, murder you, and feast on your flesh. And so the point of the game, it never gets to the actual millionaires are running you down and feasting on your flesh part. It's like, if you get that far, you're screwed. You know, they are not, these are not people who fight fair. You mm-hmm. you are not going to have a shot at them. It's going to be like they are taking you out from a helicopter with a sniper rifle as you run naked through the woods. So the point of the game is to try to escape. And it's very hard to accomplish anything. Uh, and the two ways you can make you can uh, make anything happen is if you cooperate. I And I, this is all based on my fried memories, so I could be very wrong. Mm-hmm. But I think it's like if you cooperate, you get a very slight advantage to what you're doing. But if you choose deliberately to betray your fellow survivors, you can, you know, it's like, oh, instead of rolling a D6, here, roll a D20. And But to do this, you have to say, I am the pig. Oh, and, no, I think what it is, is when you say, I am the pig, you take, you physically take everyone else's D6 that they're using for their rolls, and you just roll all of them, and they get to do nothing while you screw them over. And so the question, so it becomes this prisoner's dilemma game of, okay, you know, do I want to fall into, you know, do I want to be the pig first and get first pig mover advantage? Mm -hmm. um, Or do I want to try and maintain 
cooperation with my fellow survivors so that we can maybe all make it out? Or do I want to hold off, work together as long as possible, and then only betray them at the end when they won't be able to pig on me and, and uh, you know, leave me to uh, be eaten by the sociopathic 1%. Hmm. So I'm like, this, this could be something you could work into your battle royale. Yeah. Boy, that yeah. we're, I think we're onto something. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll have to, or I'll have I th- to uh, get let the, me yeah, rephrase yeah. that. Yeah. I think you're onto something, <laughs> and I would, uh, you know, but I, I would love to uh, watch mm-hmm. you develop that and, uh, you know, stick my oar in if you want. Yeah, new, 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 new side podcast of this podcast. Uh, watch me design a battle royale troop game. Oh, you um, could. That would fund in like the first day if you kickstarted that. <laughs> yeah. Well, we need to finish this. Yeah, um, yeah. We have so we have obligations. Kickstarter has has said you have to finish a project before you can start another one. So, um, do we have any final thoughts on uh, Ars Magica? Um. I'll let James do it because he is clearly the alpha Ars Magica nerd in this group. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to say, I mean, it, it's great. Um, the thing that everyone got excited about when it came out was the troop play. And it's such a shame that that has not been taken up in a more formal way that most conventional role-playing games rather than story games are still regimentally, there's a GM and one player and then it's one player, one character. Um, because you can have so much fun just messing around with that formula. It does not have to be, you know, held sacred. Um, just, you know, while we were just kind of shooting the breeze now, I thought about the way I would like to play Ars Magica. I would like to go back with it, back to mm-hmm. it, but possibly as something that I play maybe once or twice a year with a group of people who I only see once or twice a year. And we just oh. do a session of Ars Magica. And it's kind of, well, what have you been up to, old man, in the last five years since I last saw you? What has your covenant been been doing? What's your research? You and want just that- Ars Magica, the parlor LARP, where you're all in costume and competing to have where you will have the equivalent <laughs> well, of the Ars Magica wizard spending two seasons making a magic item is the Ars Magica cosplayer spending a few months and a couple hundred bucks making this awesome prop staff. <laughs> possibly, but I was I was going to say, I would then do it almost possibly picking up something like Brindlewood Way and kind of where you're... There's a mystery thrown in, or there is a problem that needs to be solved, and you need to come up with a solution to it. But you could do it in the GM-free free way, and I think the game would lend itself to that absolutely beautifully. And again, yes, you could bring in grogs. You could be, um, I'm sorry, my master couldn't come this time. He sends me in his his stead, and you you know you play the companion, or possibly you play someone else's compa- companion. Oh, governor, there's pigmen's outside. Oh no. <laughs> They look cute. They look very poorly illustrated to me. That's I've I have definitely heard worse English uh, accents. Than that. Well, that's, that's I'll almost, try. Almost possible. I'll um, try to sink lower. Yeah. <laughs> I've just been reading um, "Pigs Could Fly," the P.G. Woodhouse book, in mm. which pig men are uh, major characters, but they are men who look after pigs, not men who are uh. half pigs. Um, mm. So that was, and they all have accents. But the accent I, I did for, for I can't remember his name, the pig man, was not a million miles away from that. I digress. 
I think there are still gems in here. I think mm-hmm. if I was recommending it to somebody who didn't know Ars Magica, I would suggest picking up 4th edition rather than 5th edition as an introduction. Ooh. And if you get into it, then go straight to 5th, because 5th is the mother load. 5th is, is the, the true version. But it is not, as we've said, the best introduction to the game. Um, I think 4th covers the ground of how to run it and how to deal with these concepts in a way that 5th mm. almost pushes to one side. Um, but it is an enormous shame that what what's kind of become the legacy of it, which is this this huge magical system, which is is lovely, um, rather than the true play, which is its its major innovation and what made its reputation. Um, but even if we remember it for no other reason than as the launch pad for a number of extraordinary careers in the games mm-hmm. industry, it deserves its place on on every role player's bookshelf. We want to thank all of our backers who made this project possible. Uh, special thank you to Stephen Joseph Lee. Uh, thank you. I and, hope you like the episode. Uh, and I'll say the same to Evan G. Colon. Thank you for backing us and allowing us to bring you this uh, stream of audio. I want to say wisdom, but it's spelled like W-H-I-Z-Z dash D-U-M-B. <laughs> Like audio wizards. That's um, us. <laughs> Creo Audio! Very good. Uh, I'd like to thank Oren Gashuri um, for allowing me to take another deep dive into my, my... A lot of these casts have been me deep diving into things that I vaguely remember from the 80s and the 90s. <laughs> well, um, we we and all it, have our It is a constant play. delight. This is an absolute yeah. pleasure to be to be part of and to have an excuse just to, to talk about fond memories. Um, it's wonderful. Thank you all. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, we'll talk to you next time. <laughs>